0: Area
1: 941 podcasts are produced and distributed by community-powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org.
0: This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky. During the pandemic shutdown, when theater venues are closed throughout the country, This podcast has mostly been focused on my playwright interviews, which have been heard over the past several years on KPFA's Book Waves, Open Book, and Arts Waves programs, with new podcasts posted every Sunday. This week's podcast is a summer 2011 interview with Anna DeVere Smith while she was in the Bay Area discussing her then-latest project, Let Me Down Easy, which was running at Berkeley Rep., into early September of that year. My guest is Anna DeVere Smith, who is in Berkeley at Berkeley Rep, performing in a one-woman show, her own show called Let Me Down Easy, playing through September 4th. She is also the author and performer of other shows, Fires in the Mirror, Twilight Los Angeles, House Arrest. Anna DeVere Smith has been in several films, including Philadelphia, The American President, Rachel Getting Married, playing Mrs. Acolytus right now in Nurse Jackie on Showtime. That's a great character. Also is in The West Wing and The Practice. This play consists of several small pieces that have been incorporated based on interviews. These interviews themselves began in 1998 when you went to Yale Medical School. You were invited there, and that grew into the show. So take us through the process. You went there... And they were terrific to you, but you saw that there was more there.
1: Right. So I went there. Actually, I was invited in 98. I didn't go till 2000. Ralph Horowitz, who was the head of internal medicine at the time, had seen me speak at a Martin Luther King Day celebration of all things and figured from that that I might have something to offer the medical school and hospital. Of course, I didn't think so. I thought, what in the world would he want, you know, an actor to... Perform for it, Medical Grand Rounds, which is a pretty, you know, it's a lecture series for doctors. Usually scientists are the ones who speak there. What he perceived me as, first and foremost, was a listener. You know, we now certainly critique doctors that they, they don't listen. And I think that part of what he wanted to do was to affect that in the school and in training. At any rate, what happened for me in that experience is I realized that People who have been confronted with a, an illness, suddenly their lives are changing, the lives of their whole family and circle of loved ones changes. That's a perfect place for me to go to do my work. I'm What I call myself now is a student of expression. And what I learned at Yale was all I had to do was put down my tape recorder and turn on the button and say, what happened? And people became very expressive. They were very generous with their stories. And I so enjoyed my time at Yale. I liked how, how efficient, <laughs> believe it or not, even though you and I and your listeners could cite many stories, some of which are told and to let me down easy, of a lack of efficiency in medicine, there was a way that they were organized that was really interesting to me, that I enjoyed. And they treated me very well, very respectfully. And I wanted to do my best for them, and they appreciated what I did. And so, five years after that, I thought about expanding my research and trying to make it into a full fledged play. So, 320 interviews later, five productions later, the Let Me Down Easy that's playing in Berkeley right now was created.
0: During those five years, you were working in film and television, right? Yeah,
1: I was working in film. Uh, I don't know where we were in the trajectory of the West Wing. That was probably coming to an end uh, when I started this. Yes, it was coming to an end. I was uh, writing a screenplay that didn't get produced. <laughs> I wrote a book. And in 2005, I thought that it would be interesting to revisit that medical material and to think about building out a play based on that. And that's what brought me back to doing my interviews. I ended up doing 320 interviews on three continents and had five different productions. The production that your audience will see in Berkeley is the final production, the one I created for New York, and saw the possibility of making the play tell the human side of the story about health care that was beginning to be played out in politics when Obama rolled out his healthcare care legislation.
0: When you came back to it, It seems to be maybe three segments remain from that original interview segments from way back when. Just one. Just Um, one.
1: Ruth Katz, who was a dean at Yale when I met her. There is another Yale patient, but I came to Hazel Merritt because her doctor, knowing that I was going to take the material from Yale and try to expand it into a play suggested I talk to her. Hazel Merritt is a woman who's refusing dialysis, and her doctor actually said, you know, um, I have this interesting patient who's refusing dialysis. I think you should talk to her. I think you'll find her interesting. And he came to see the show, and probably the biggest compliment I could get was that from seeing my portrayal of her, he developed a deeper understanding of why she was refusing dialysis and kind of said, I didn't even know all of that. And of course, that's not just about me, but I think whenever art, any art form can find a way to express something that's not yet been expressed, then we're doing the, you know, we're doing our best work.
0: Anna DeVere Smith, 2005 was also Katrina, so you went to New Orleans as well, and you went to Rwanda too, right?
1: Yes. One of my friends actually is Pulitzer Prize winning author, Samantha Power who, when she found out that I was doing work that had to do with the body, and, you know, I say the vulnerable body, and if you're talking about health care, that's what you're talking about, is the healthy body. We wish that's what we're talking about. That's what we should be talking about. But right now, because it says health care, doesn't say health intervention. But very often now, um, we're talking about a body that has been made vulnerable, by some kind of force. And so Samantha said to me, you're writing a play about the body, you've got to go to Rwanda. She's pretty smart. So I thought I would do that because it seemed to me I could also look at the body as vulnerable to the state. What is that about? And I have to say those interviews in Rwanda, although they do not appear in this version of the play, had a huge effect on the play because I learned a lot while I was in Rwanda, just about the power of human kindness in times and really, really dark times, and just the power of how people have to put themselves back together again after a disaster. While I was in Africa, uh, we were actually in South Africa coming home from a long day of interviewing, I turned on the TV and I saw a lot of black people in trouble. And I thought, wow, wh- where is this? I thought it was another African country. It was the United States of America. I was blown away that these images were from a city in the United States. So when I got back home, I went down to New Orleans after, after Katrina.
0: And there's one segment uh, featuring a doctor from uh, Charity Hospital there, which is one of the more touching segments to watch, How was it for you interviewing her? Because she's describing the night and the days thereafter, after the uh, flooding. It's a horror. It's like you're walking into the worst third world country.
1: Yeah, I mean, that whole trip was distressing and disturbing for your listeners who didn't get a chance to see it. I mean... Sometimes walking down some streets, I felt like I was in one of those old westerns about uh, almost like ghost towns, you know, just like a everything in disarray, a lone dog, you know, walking down a long street, houses upside down, cars upside down, people, grown men weeping, not being able to get through an interview. Um, very, very, very powerful experience. Obviously, I could have written an entire play just about. Katrina, what, what pleases me about um, Kirsten Kurtz-Burke's material, a doctor, a young uh, white uh, woman doctor, a charity hospital, which was considered uh, one of the first hospitals for poor people in America, is how much audiences do respond to her out of the 20 characters that I portray in Let Me Down Easy. Because let's face it, the people who come to the theater are people who have some kind of advantage, you know, whether it's education, whether it's time babysitters, money, they have a a leg up. And that they would be so attracted to a character who is really has a real strong critique about our government and how it behaved at that time and really points to, I think, an important question about what kind of country do we have? I mean, do we really have a caring nation? We want to think we do. And I think that's why... Many of the people who see the play respond to Kirsten because they, you know, they know what happened during that flood, but to really hear it in a condensed packet, a 12-minute piece, I think brings it back and makes people say, gee, I wish that didn't happen here.
0: To me, it's the 2000 election, stolen election, 2003 invasion of Iraq, and Katrina all contributed for me to a breakdown in the country I've grown up in that I've never seen before, and the and same feelings for you, you
1: think? I don't know, really, because I also visited two very troubling racial explosions, one being the, uh, in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, the tragedies there, uh, and then the Los Angeles riots. Um, that was phenomenal to me. I mean, just amazing. When I arrived in L.A. and saw the destruction, and also saw, because I did many interviews there too, from Beverly Hills to the outskirts of LA to South Central in a condensed and focused period of time to see the disparity of advantages and also the differences in culture. When I was a girl, I hadn't thought about being an actress, but I had this dream, like a girl-like dream to learn every language in the world. And I didn't know. I said, so I said, I wanted to be a linguistic ethnologist. I wanted to learn all these languages and maybe work at the UN. I had no idea what career it was going to be or not. But when I was doing my research for Twilight, I thought, wow, this is like what I wanted to do when I was a kid. Behind any door in Los Angeles is a whole Other world. And so as I began to meet people, the Korean Americans that I met, as they started to take me to their churches and their restaurants, it was like a whole other world I didn't know. Or my, my muse, Twilight, who was a, a a gang member, um, helped bring about the gang truce, you know, the world he showed me was a world I, I didn't know existed. And so that's one of the wonderful things. I'm sure you experience it too as a journalist that I get to open doors that I I didn't know existed, and I'm always amazed at what's behind the door.
0: I'm always amazed at the creativity of the people that I I discover. I mean, just doing interviews, I'm I'm always in awe.
1: Well, and to me, what I, I think I've said, I consider myself first and foremost. People always say to me, well, what are you? you know, are you an actress? Are you a teacher? Are you a writer? Some people say you are a journalist. You this, you that, you the other. I am first and foremost a student of expression. And what amazes me every time I sit with my tape recorder is the very, um, the extraordinary resources that anybody has to communicate to you. One of the characters in this play who I love very much is a rodeo cowboy. Now, he is a bull rider uh, that I met in Idaho. He is, on paper, the most conservative person of, of anyone in, in the show. And he says the most progressive stuff. You know, he calls for a flat rate. Right. You know, he calls for a flat rate. He got it all banged up. He, You know, a bull stepped on his back and he was going to lose his kidney. And so a doctor who happened to be at the rodeo took him to a, an army medical center and he you know, he says right there, he says, you know, uh, and, and uh, I could have lost my kidney, but I didn't lose my kidney. You know, and them doctors, they get paid a flat rate. It's not like they're trying to rate me to make more money to pay their Mercedes Benz bills or whatever they got. Bet you most of them guys don't even drive them fancy sports cars like the Doris do. Cost me 1200 bucks flat rate. Yeah, flat rate. 1200 bucks. It didn't matter if I got CAT scans or whatever they did to me. Didn't change when I was in the ICU for six days. Didn't change. I didn't get no doctor's bills or nothing. I was in there for 11 days. Cost me 1200 bucks flat rate. Everyone, everyone pays a flat rate. Doesn't matter what it is. And personally, I feel like we need to go to a deal like that. I mean, He's making the most progressive call. Now, if we stopped him on the street and said, what do you think about Obamacare? It'd probably be like the, uh, what I saw in the back of a car here coming across the bridge. It's a suppository. I mean, he would be against Obamacare, right. but he's calling for greater equity.
0: I, I think that the, the sum total, when you look at all of the varied people that you've done, you find underneath something very different than what you would see on the surface. And I think it's your job, I guess, as an interviewer and also as an actress and performer to pull that out somehow.
1: That's really well said. I think you really put your finger on something that people rarely assess about my work. Mary Ellen Mark, who's a photographer that I admire, quite a bit. I think it's her photograph of me. In fact, it's on the cover of the program for Let Me Down Easy. Writes in the beginning of one of her books of photographs that the camera provides her with the necessary distance to get close to strangers. And that's what my enterprise is. And one of the things that brings me close is not that I'm the same as that person, that the, the bull rider and I are very, very different. I'm not, I like diversity. I'm not looking for right. sameness at all. In fact, I'm not working well until I realize how profoundly different I am. If, if, if in the interview, I don't have that sinking feeling, that horrible feeling in my stomach, oh, I don't know this person, no matter how well I prepare, I don't know anything. If I haven't had that feeling, I'm not working. But What is shocking to me is no matter what a person has done, there's something about our humanness that is, does trap us into a kind of a sameness. Do you know, one of the people I interviewed, not for this play, but for another play, was a woman who killed her, who was a part of the murder of her own daughter. And I would think, now, what's that like? But when I opened that door, it wasn't that I could imagine myself as her which is what acting should cause me to do. It was just that in the circumstance she laid out for me, what she did seemed commonplace. That's what I think is so remarkable about you know, opening up the door.
0: And when you open the door and walk inside, Okay, you've got your, your microphone, you've got your but you don't have a camera, do you?
1: I do now. This is the first oh, show. Really? I I've done eighteen shows or something like that in this manner of interviewing people and learning the words. This is the first one where I took a camera because cameras look at look at your equipment. When I started working, you know, <laughs> I thought I was hot stuff to have a Panasonic, you know, cassette tape recorder that was about that big, right? Like longer than a book but about the size of a book. This is what you're carrying now. We could be doing this on your iPhone, you know. Soon it'll be, if not already, on the the tip of a pencil. So equipment is so small now that you know, I didn't have the resources to have a whole crew, but, you know, now I can take a camera and myself, and it's uh, easy.
0: When you're working on creating the characters, are you trying to stick to who they are in real life? Are you exaggerating certain
1: elements? Well, it becomes theatricalized. Where, where my goal is to, I'm obsessed with language and sounds. When I was a child, my grandfather said, if you say a word often enough, it becomes you, and that Uh, becomes my life's work, right? Going around America with a tape recorder, interviewing people and performing them with the the goal it'll never happen. But what I set out to do is to try to absorb America by absorbing individuals and their different words. So I'm obsessed with words and language. That part is true. I'm not saying anything that a person didn't say, unless I slip up down to the very utterances they made. However... Yes, once I'm on the stage, it becomes amplified. And it is also different from a documentary film because I am embodying that person. So really, what and, and I have the limit of not just my body and my race and my gender and all of that stuff. I'm also limited by my imagination because what you said as it comes through me can only be what I imagine it to be. I'm trapped by the limit of that. I am pleased that most of the people in this play have seen themselves performed, and some of them several times. Some of them have even brought to the show people who they referred to in the interview. So now I've met the people they referred to. I'm happy about that because... What I want people to experience is the portrait that I'm making of them. And they know that that's different from them, but they're interested in the portrait. So, for example, if I mentioned Mary Ellen Mark before, she takes my picture, which she did. I want to know what she sees. I'm so interested in her. That's why I want her to take my picture. So it's, am I going to look at that photograph when I see it and go, Oh my God, I look fat! Or I hope I don't look fat. Right, Right? Or why don't I look like those supermodels she photographed, right? That could be a version of what I'm going to think, but I'm actually more interested in what she saw. And so I hope that the people that I've interviewed at this kind of stage of my work, and I've been working like this since the late 70s, have somewhat of that experience is what did she hear rather than just what did I sound like?
0: What is the difference between working on these pieces, these individual pieces, and creating a character like Mrs. Acolytus in Nurse Jackie?
1: Well, it's very different. This work is extraordinarily demanding. There's nothing I do in any format that is as hard and demanding and as challenging as this work that I do in the theater. However... You know, with Mrs. Acolytis, I am really A I, in TV, which is different than a play or a movie. I never know what's going to happen. I mean, I go to our table reads when we get the script for the next episode. I go with extraordinary trepidation because I don't know. I could open that up and she could be dead. She, she, I don't know what the writers are going to imagine for Mrs. Acolytis. So it's way out of my control.
0: One thing I noticed is Mrs. Acolytus started out as almost a parody of a hospital administrator, but by season three, she becomes the most sympathetic and one of the most important characters in the entire piece. Did you have anything to do with
1: that? Oh, I don't know. I mean, you always, you were always paranoid that you aren't bringing enough. I shouldn't say you, but I know myself as an actress and I'm sure other actresses in television, you know, we don't know if we're bringing enough. We don't know what the writers see that we're bringing. I just work as hard as I can to think about what the writers are trying to communicate with Mrs. Acolytus and to try to develop a relationship with the other people who affect what you see. You know, I'm I'm very close to the, the costume designer and the hair and makeup people. In the course of the third season, they changed my look. And that was a huge, you know, collaboration on everybody's part. I'm very interested in that. So the work is, you know, I think maybe the hardest part about working in television is I'm usually the first one called because I'm African American and my hair has to be dealt with um, differently than everybody else's and it takes longer. But, you know, I may be picked up at 4 o'clock in the morning and I might not leave there till 1 o'clock in the morning. And how do you stay alive and dynamic in all that time? But I have an enormous amount of love and gratitude for uh, the extraordinary collaboration that happens.
0: Well, getting back for a moment to Let Me Down Easy. When you're creating a piece like this and doing these interviews, how haphazard or how directed is the search for the interview subject?
1: Well, I throw a very wide net. I don't know that I would call it haphazard, but I certainly, in all, all of my shows, I, I cast a very, very wide net. And it's in the process of casting that net that I even become you know, more acquainted with what I might be trying to say And that also has to do with making an assessment of what is being said. And I don't need to say that, you know, if it's being said in the newspaper, if it's being said in a courtroom, if it's being said in politics. I don't need to say that, but to find the thing that's yet unspoken. You took
0: all of these interviews and gradually as you did them, you knew what you were getting and you were able to mold them more were there any interviews that came along that were just so remarkable and yet you couldn't find a place for it? Many them?
1: I mean, first of all, the fact that the Rwanda material is no longer in right. this project. I mean that that material is stunning because I talked to those considered the victims of the genocide, the Tutsis, and I also talked to the those considered the perpetrators, the Hutus. And I wish there was a place to make another play about that because these are people not speaking in their first language. And just sometimes, just sometimes the English that was spoken when English was spoken was so beautiful. So I'm very, very sad about that, that that's not in. And I also made a trip to our bases in Germany where our soldiers go to get patched up well enough to go home in Ramstein Air Force Base and Landstuhl Army Hospital. I'm very sorry that none of that material is in the show.
0: Anna DeVere Smith, what about material that, was from an interview, but you chose to use other material. There's got to be some amazing stuff oh, in Ann of, Richards.
1: I mean. Well, Ann Richards, all of them. I mean, you think that I'm, I'm talking to somebody usually about an hour. They say great stuff. And, you know, sometimes when you go back to study, you realize that there's something, and I'll, I'll try to slip it in. You know, i try to slip it back in.
0: And the ordering of the pieces themselves... Is that based on just the creating the different characters, content? How would you It's very hard.
1: That? It's it's just a mess. I mean I don't know really know how to explain it. You know, I, I surround myself with very smart people. I come out, start performing right away characters. They say things. They I put people together in the room who don't agree, who are not going to agree, who come from very different backgrounds. Um, They argue. I listen to them argue. I go home, rewrite the play. So there's a period of time where where I'm writing a new play every single night. And then, of course, when it comes to production, you do a production in front of an audience, Critics have their say. Other people have their say. You, you know, lick your wounds, you go back, you try again. That's the only way I know to make a play. And by the way, somebody pointed out to me that playwright is not P-L-A-Y-W-R-I-T-E, but W-R-I-G-H-T. A playwright, like a wheelwright, is someone who makes plays. And what does the director
0: do? How does the director work in that?
1: It depends on the production. It depends on the director, on their personality and what they're bringing. In this case, Leonard is a meticulous man. He and the designers conceived of this extraordinary space. And he also is very frank, has a lot of candor, and had no problem telling me when, you know, he couldn't follow the story and made a lot of very, very useful suggestions.
0: And in terms of creating the entire set.
1: That's his work with the designers. I mean, really... Beautiful work. One thing did happen by accident, which is we were working together in Austin, Texas, in a very small theater. And I always work in the morning alone, without the director, for several hours with the movement coach and the vocal coach and those kinds of people who work with me. And we were in a rehearsal room with a lot of mirrors. And uh, a young person came in with a bunch of brown paper and they started covering the mirrors. I said, "What are you doing?" They said, "Well, we heard you don't like to have mirrors." I said, "No, no, I need the mirrors." So it's a lucky thing that. I didn't want to face the mirror while I was was performing. So Leonard was facing me and watching me in the mirror as an accident, which may not have ever happened. And that's one of the things that led us, along with some material of of John Lars that ended up not in the New York production, but nonetheless, that these kinds of happy accidents, you know, stimulated his imagination. And you're not going to, I mean, Ricardo Hernandez is a brilliant set designer and uh Jules and Peggy are great lighting designers, and Ann Holt Ward is a meticulous costume designer. So the design team was just top-notch. And from what I can tell, and I don't get to watch it every night, but other people do, I think they had a very successful collaboration. Anna DeVere Smith, you're taking this around. Are you taking it elsewhere now? Uh, I will be finishing this tour. I've been on tour since December. And I'll be finishing it at the end of July in Los Angeles at the Broad Theater in Santa Monica, And that's going to be the end of Let Me Down Easy.
0: After that, are you working on other projects of similar nature?
1: I don't know, because uh, doing this tour is extremely demanding, and there's just a lot to do every day. I haven't really been able to think about what's next, but if your listeners want to send in any ideas and you pass them on to me, I'm happy to have them.
0: Anna Devere Smith returned to Berkeley Rep three years later with another show, Notes from the Field, Doing Time and Education. That show was filmed in 2018 and can be seen on HBO and HBO Max. Since 2011, she has been a regular on the TV shows Blackish and For the People and is listed in the cast of an upcoming Netflix series, Inventing Anna. She was also seen in the film, Can You Ever Forgive Me? I'm Richard Walensky, and join me next Sunday for another edition of the Bay Area Theater Podcast.